Welcome everyone to Femme Street and JMBC's first AMA. We're here with Leah Sullivan, who is a general partner at View Capital and the founder of Task Revit. And I'm Sarah, I'm the founder of Femme Street, which is a curated weekly newsletter featuring timely must-read posts from female investors and female operators. And I'm here with Marin from JMBC today. JMBC is a venture fund investing in female-led businesses across the US and Europe. I just wanted to welcome Leah here. And uh, yeah, why we actually invited her is that um, where there is no playbook for what's going on these days, I sat down with Marin and we wanted to bring in someone who's actually been there. And uh, Leah is someone who, yeah, would like to share a few of her lessons from the past with you guys today. And she's currently a general partner at Fuel Capital, where she invests in consumer businesses, marketplaces, and in retail companies. And before becoming an investor herself, she was the founder and CEO of TaskRabbit. For those that don't know what TaskRabbit actually does, it's a marketplace that matches on-demand freelancers with uh, on-demand opportunities in the cities. And she launched a company very interestingly in 2008 and scaled the company to 44 cities. Cities, I think that's very important, um, which is incredible. And they also raised $50 million before selling the business in 2017 to IKEA. Before she founded also TaskRabbit, she was um, eight years of software engineer at IBM. So Leah, welcome for joining us today. It's really amazing to have you here. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, great. I've given the background on you already, but I would love to deep dive a little bit more and how it was for you when you started your business in 2008. What also maybe made you comfortable and kind of like making the leap from a software engineer at IBM to becoming a founder? Yes. Well, um, thank you for the intro. And you're right. There is no playbook uh, as to what's happening at this particular time, but we've definitely seen some similar things happen before. And Back in 2008, I was an engineer at IBM. I'd spent eight years there as a programmer, and I had this idea for TaskRabbit, what eventually became TaskRabbit. And I had the idea in February of 2008. Um, I ended up quitting my job at IBM in June, so that summer of 2008, and then the stock market crashed in September of 2008. Um, now, I didn't see the downturn coming. I think you know, a lot of people didn't. When I left my job at IBM, you know, I was just really passionate and really excited about this idea I had. And at the time, there were new emerging technologies around social networking, like Facebook, around mobile technologies, the iPhone had just come out, and location-based awareness, which no one was really utilizing in their applications yet. Yeah. Um, so as an engineer, I got really excited about these emerging technologies that I knew I could build a platform on top of to connect people in the real world to get real things done. That was sort of the premise. I quit my job in June. I spent sort of 10 weeks at home coding the first version of the site, got it launched in late August. And then that is literally the moment where, you know, the stock market crashed, everything took, went into a downturn. So I didn't see it coming. Um, and at first it was like, panic mode, right? I had just left this cushy job. I was paid very well. It was a very stable environment. And all of a sudden, I had no job. I was bootstrapping a company and I was launching a new idea that no one had ever seen before. There was a lot of, of panic, a lot of sleepless nights. Now, it turned out to be sort of the best time to launch a company like TaskRabbit because people were looking for new ways of working. 
And yeah. I remember the first taskers that I found on Craigslist, it was shocking, actually, their backgrounds. They were lawyers that had just been laid off, pharmacists, teachers, these really um, highly skilled professionals that were all of a sudden out of work. We didn't know this at the time, but the future of work was shifting and it was changing because of the recession. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, TaskRabbit was one of the first that offered this new way of work in this peer-to-peer economy. Yeah. And when it comes to challenges, did you change anything or the way you operated in the very early days and then also going forward? So the plan when I left IBM in June was I gave myself six months, basically through the end of that year, to make something happen. And and that was kind of like get the company launched, maybe raise a little bit of seed money, kind of start to grow and scale it. I cashed out my IBM pension, which was $25,000 to kind of cover me for that six month period. Once I launched the product in September of that year, I was living in Boston at the time. So that's where I launched it. It was the worst time to go out and start talking to investors. So finally I had this product launched, but like there was just no way I was going to be able to raise money. And so I started meeting investors. I just, I met every VC in the Boston area. I met a ton of angels as well. It came to the end of that year. I felt like I was having good conversations. Like people thought it was a great idea. People understood what I was building, but the market was so bad. There was so much hesitancy to really, you know, pull the trigger and, and get around done. And so um, it took an extra three months. It took nine months. And then I finally got a couple of Boston area angel investors to write in a very small check. Literally, it started with $50,000 they ended up writing in $150,000 total. So it was very, very bootstrapped. And that was probably something that it wasn't in the initial plan, right? The plan was to launch a product, talk to investors, raise money, scale a company. And it turned out that it was really about a year and a half. It was really 18 months before I got any real funds into the company and the company was actually capitalized. And that was in October of 2009 when I uh, got a million dollar seed round of funding done and was able to bring on more team members. Yeah. And on the positive side, was there anything else? I mean, you were by yourself um, in the beginning, which is obviously extremely challenging. Uh, was there, you talked about earlier, you said there were a lot of like opportunities opening up for you because you realized it was the best time to start a company like TaskRabbit. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit more on that or, or any other positives that were um, coming out of this. Well, in some ways, it was really energizing. It was just me, and I was the first task rabbit, and I had a little scooter. I'd run people's errands and pick up their dry cleaning, and in some ways, that was awesome because I was really able to connect with the customer. I could understand the customer needs in real time, both what clients wanted on the platform and for me as a tasker who was running these errands, what I needed, what tools did I need to build to make the TaskRabbit community successful. And so I think being really, really close to the customer in the early days in this forced way, because it was just me, I had to do everything. There was no budget to hire anyone else. Nothing was outsourced. I really got a deep understanding of what the business needs were, what the product needs were, you know, what I believed thought would work at scale. It was really energizing because everyone I met and talked to both 
people that needed help and people that were looking for work were really excited about what I was building. You know, investors were excited, but they were sort of hesitant. But the people that were using the service were really, really excited about it. And so that was really energizing and it gave me a lot of confidence to kind of keep going and keep building. And, you know, eventually the market slowly improved and investors came around. And so I think the analogy here is just being able to kind of wait out the markets and and give yourself the time and runway to use this time to really understand your customer needs and understand what the customer wants you to be building. I think that's a really good point. And I think many early stage founders are just trying to kind of like, or they're focused on extending their runways and then trying to stay, I say, afloat, but they might not show as much growth, I think maybe in 12 months time. So yeah. do you have any advice maybe what I think it's a question actually I get asked a lot as an investor myself as well. And how should the founder kind of like go into this one now? What would be the what would you expect as an investor as well? I think it's a great question. I mean, I think on one side as an investor, we're going to see valuations change. Founders will see valuations change. You know, I think the other question sort of on the other side for founders, like you said, is around metrics and milestones. So as an investor today, you know, at Fuel, we're used to seeing certain monthly recurring revenues or certain run rates or certain annual runways. You know, when we invest in a business today at Seed, it's not uncommon for that company to be making $50,000 a month. Um, and working its way up to over $100,000 a month. Um, we're seeing Series A's get done in the $2 million annual recurring revenue range. Those numbers might not hold in 12 months, right? It might be much, much lower than that. I, as an investor, see this next 12 months as survival mode. If you can survive in the next year and you can still grow a little bit, if you can grow organically, if you can really prove that your customer really needs what you're building, I think those metrics and those milestones are gonna be really important because as the market improves, as consumer demand uh, improves and increases with the economy, you have to be able to believe that the customers and revenue will eventually come and scale. Super interesting. I think that's going to be, I think, one of the most talked topics probably in the next couple of months because I think we don't really have the answer, don't really know what's going to happen. Um, and then I think another point that I wanted to raise is more about you actually being a female founder, but also maybe actually not being that well, not coming out of an area maybe from the valley before where you were that well connected. Maybe you, you can share a little bit more there on your advice that you maybe have specifically for female founders or underrepresented founders that are now fundraising. Well, I, I grew up in the Boston area. I was never exposed to startups or venture capital. And in fact, when I raised my first round of funding, I didn't really understand how it all worked. I was kind of thinking, all right, well, if the company fails, like, do I have to give the money back? Like, I don't understand what's happening here. So there's a lot to learn. There's a huge learning curve. What helped me was to really meet with as many people as I could, to really network, to find mentors, to find advisors. I found other CEOs in the Boston area that really kind of took me under their wing and um, showed me the ropes and explained things and helped me hire, helped me fire the first person, helped me negotiate with angel investors. And so it's just finding a great group of people around you that you can learn from. And it was really those Boston area CEOs that connected me to the Valley eventually. And one of them, Scott Griffith, who at the time was the CEO of Zipcar, 
had mentioned in the incubator program that Facebook was running in the summer of 2009 out in Palo Alto. I had never set foot on the West Coast in my life. I'd never been to Silicon Valley, uh, but I applied to this incubator program and got in and decided to kind of take the leap and spend 12 weeks over that summer at Facebook, building on top of the Facebook platform. And that really opened up my network in a further way. I think things like incubator programs are great for people that don't have a network and who are building a network because you instantly get connected with other founders mm -hmm. and with investors and advisors that have a connection to, to that incubator. So I wanted to jump in with a few questions, Leah. Um, I wanted to just kind of keep expanding on the discussion about it, what advice you have for founders now. And I think your position is, is really interesting in that you have been in the founder's shoes and now you're on the investor side. And I think we've, we've all heard about, you know, back in 2012 when you went through a big pivot with TaskRap. And I think a lot of early stage founders now are faced with the decision of, should I pivot? Should I do a full pivot? And really curious, you know, what went through your mind when you were thinking about that pivot and how, what would you, what advice would you give to founders now? Yeah. I mean, great question. So in 2012, we were four years into operating the company and we had built a product up until that point that was very focused on the web. And so by 2012, the market had improved. New companies had emerged, particularly mobile and building mobile first um, was something that most companies, most new startups were doing. And so we made the really, really tough decision to throw away the entire code base and start from scratch. We actually did it in a brand new market. We did it in London, where we said, let's go open a different country, <laughs> someplace where no one has ever heard of us before um, and isn't used to a certain product experience. And let's test it. Let's just start from scratch, start new and see how it works. And London quickly became our fourth largest market out of over 40. And so we knew that we were on to something there as far as the product was concerned. But we had to make the difficult choice then to kind of reorganize and restructure the entire team. And so one example was I had to go through um, a, a process where I had to lay off about 30% of the team. We had a ton of money in the bank. It wasn't about running out of cash, but it was about reorganizing the team so that we weren't spending a ton on marketing and business development. And we moved those funds over to hire more mobile engineers and more product managers um, and more community managers that could handle the new operations that we were rolling out. And so we did that. It was incredibly painful from an operational standpoint, from an organizational standpoint, and then from a product standpoint, really starting from scratch after you're four years into a company. I, I mean, honestly, I, I don't know in hindsight if I have the stomach to do it again. I'm glad that I did it that first time um, because it saved the company and really brought us to scale in a way we wouldn't have gotten to otherwise. But it was really, really tough. And so I think my learnings from there that apply to today go back to understanding your customer. Customer had changed so dramatically in those four years. You know, we started before Lyft and Uber were a thing. We started, you know, before Twitter and was a thing and having this like instant feedback and instantaneous offering. 
And as the customer got trained to uh, get information on demand, to you know call a car on demand, we sort of had fallen behind and we didn't have that on-demand offering. And so staying close to the customer, understanding what the customer needs are at this moment in time, and realizing that they're gonna change. You know, none of us will ever work the same way again. None of us will ever look at school the same way again. None of us will ever look at digital health and telemedicine the same way again after this collective worldwide experience. And so I think thinking about how does that change your customer's mindset? What's important to your customer today that may have not even been on their radar a few months ago is something to really, really think hard about. Okay, that's great. Um, I wanted to follow up on the question about um, cutting employees and doing layoffs. I know a lot of startups right now are grappling with, do I do layoffs? Do I do furloughs? Do I cut salaries across the board? Um, curious if you have any advice for founders on how to make those trade-offs and, you know, and also how to do it because it's such a difficult thing to do. It is. It's, um, it's really hard to do, but as hard as it is for you as the founder to do it, it's a hundred times harder. <laughs> For those employees that have to go through it and so I think one keeping that perspective in mind you know is really really important and having a lot of empathy for what your team is gonna go through so a couple of things I mean we're telling all of our portfolio companies right now to have at least 24 months of runway of cash in the bank and if you don't have that cash in the bank then you need to figure out a way to cut back to get there. Um, now is not going to be a great time to raise money, to rate particularly external money. Maybe from internal investors, you can get a little bit of a bridge round done that will kind of bridge you through the next couple of years. But I think really looking at your plan um, and understanding what do you need to have for cash in the bank to get you either to profitability or two years of runway. I would say cut your revenue projections at least in half a general rule of thumb is bring down those financial projections that you had. And then, you know, I would say if you do make the decision that you need to reorganize, you need to restructure, you need to cut back, look at sort of the mission critical roles in the company and, and particularly align those mission critical roles with where you think the company is headed. So in my example, I didn't have enough mobile engineers and product developers to build the product I knew we needed to build. And so we had to cut from marketing and from business development in order to really fill those new roles. I'd say, look at your teams and say, like, where is the product going? Where is the customer going? And who do I absolutely need here to stay to, to make that happen? So say you decide you need to cut 30%, you know, of the team to kind of make the numbers work to make your runway work. I would challenge you to even go deeper than that. Cut as deep as possible. Because once you've made the decision to cut, you don't wanna to have to go back six months from now, even a year from now, and do another round. It is such a, such a hit culturally. It's such a hit on morale. It's just, it's mentally hard for you as a founder to have to go through this. The other thing I would say is, you know, maybe there are adjustments to salary that need to be made across the team. You know, with a startup, with a private company, maybe there are opportunities to give people more equity right now. And so maybe they take down some of their cash and some of their salary, but you reward them as you would, you know, a co-founder with more equity. And those people are really getting in the trenches with you and staying in the trenches with you. And so to reward them 
to own a more of a piece of the business, I think is also a great way at this time to structure the new incentive plans that will help give you that runway to move forward. Okay, that's helpful. Um, and then also curious, since you've been on both sides of the founder as both an investor and, and a founder, what's your advice for communicating with your stakeholders right now, communicating with both employees um, and investors in a challenging time? I mean, I just think as much transparency as possible is always it just super important. I mean, at TaskRabbit, we had weekly company-wide meetings where everyone saw the financials, everyone knew what cash was in the bank, everyone knew revenues and burn and where we were going. And so I think just being really transparent with people is important. I think, you know, with investors, what investors want to know right now from you is, do you have enough runway? How are you adjusting your plan over the next 12, 18, and 24 months. Um, and so I think thinking through that and communicating to investors now as well and getting them on board with maybe a new plan or new strategy is also really important. And are you seeing any um, interesting hacks or strategies for trying to increase sales cycles at this point, sort of scrappy ways to, to get those quick sales? Um, I don't know of any silver bullets right now. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on your industry. I know that the early days of TaskRabbit, we really didn't spend much money on marketing or paid advertising, but, um, you know, I would conserve cash and I would try to be really, really lean about operations. Okay. So you alluded, um, earlier to the us just entering a completely different world and different type of businesses emerging out of this. Um, do you have any trends that you're interested in um, that you're sort of looking towards over the next 12 to 24 months as things you think might emerge as opportunities out of this? Yeah, I mean, I would say two things. It's a great time actually to be a founder and it's a great time to be an investor. And here's why. Our world is changing, the customer is changing. You know, customers don't change behavior easily. And sometimes it takes these, these jolts and these crises that really make a customer kind of open to new ideas, open to innovations. And so there are going to be a lot of opportunities right now as a founder to think through what are the innovations that the customer is craving today that don't exist? Or what are some new behaviors that we're all kind of forced into at this point that we could really improve the experience around? And so as a founder, I think looking at digital health in telemedicine, looking at education, and uh, we're all homeschooling our children right now. It's like, you know, kind of crazy to think about. And so what are the platforms and improvements that we can make in those areas. The future of work continues to change. I mean, I think the shift really started in 2008, 2009, 2010. That was sort of phase one of this peer-to-peer, -peer, you know, gig economy and labor changing. But now we're in this whole new phase of labor and we're all working virtually. We're working from home. We're on Zoom meetings all day. And so what are the opportunities in virtual remote work that may shift and change and be innovative? As an investor, I'm certainly looking at all those areas and really interested to see what are the innovations that are going to happen. And I think we're looking for founders that are going to be resilient through this, that are going to operate smart through this crisis. You know, when I founded TaskRabbit in 2008, I think that the DNA of the company and the DNA that was built into me ended up being 
very scrappy and very lean because cash was so tight because it was so hard to raise money at that time. And I think founders that start businesses today or operate through this crisis are going to have that same mentality. They're going to operate towards profitability. They're going to create really sustainable models that as an investor, I think that's pretty compelling. Okay, great. Well, I'm going to um, switch over to some of the questions that are coming from the chat right now. So I think we've, we answered the first one, which was about these changing work patterns and about opportunities to start new businesses in the next six months. Um, another question that has come up is, um, is just about investor sentiment right now. And a lot of founders, I think, you know, we're planning to raise in the next six months and are now rethinking their plans and wondering, are investors going to be making new investments this summer and this fall? How should founders be thinking about that and adjusting their plans? So a couple of things. I mean, I'll say that investors will always take meetings. I mean, I found this as a founder, like everyone will meet with you. They want to hear about what you're doing. That's part of the job, right? Is to information gather. I would say, I don't know how many new investments are going to get done in the next six months. I think it's, it's really a question. I think we don't really know what's going to happen with valuations. You know, valuations are certainly going to come down. So I think that uncertainty in the market is going to make it difficult for investors to get conviction around valuations and around rounds. And so even if they love what you're doing, I mean, investors loved what I was doing at TaskRabbit. It was just too much uncertainty in the market for, for people to really pull the trigger. I also think investors are probably going to start to look at things with a different lens. They're going to look at companies with a different lens. And we're going into this recession and how recession proof is your business. Investors will probably be a little bit more curated about the deals that they do and, and the checks that they write. Okay, that makes sense. Um, another follow-up question on that from the audience is, uh, is just about B2B versus B2C and, you know, which, which are you more bullish on over the next year? Um, I think the question from the person was, will B2B businesses have a harder time? Curious what you think on that front. I mean, I think that there are pros and cons actually on both, right? From a B2C standpoint, you're dealing with a bad economy and going into a recession and will customers really be willing to pay for products? Can they pay for products? On the B2B side, yeah, all of these businesses are also struggling and you know, may not make it, um, particularly the smaller businesses may not make it through this. And so if your company is really relying on a B2B customer and on an SMB customer, I mean, there are a lot of questions there. Both sides are gonna have their own issues and I think it'll, just depend how the economy improves and how the market improves. I'll also say I think there are opportunities in both places. Um, and it really depends on sort of your product offering and the solution you're offering um, and if it makes sense right now. So shifting gears a little bit, one of the other questions from the, the group was just around being a solo founder versus having co-founders um, and would love any of your thoughts on the pros and cons and your experience in the early days and, and whether having a co-founder was helpful. Yeah, I mean, I wish that I had had like that one person that was in the trenches with me from the very beginning and had quit their job too. And it was the two of us working full time. That's what I always wanted, but I never really found that. And then the company got launched and I raised a little bit of money and like with every little milestone that I hit, it was hard to find that other person to bring on in an equal way. And so then at some point it just shifted to, okay, I need to hire a team and I need to 
you know, higher employees and those early, early employees definitely got bigger chunks of equity and more founder like options. But it took it took some time to find those people. And so I would have much preferred to, you know, have a co-founder or two co-founders and work on something together. I think that is definitely the better route to go. It just is, it's really lonely and it's really hard not to have that sounding board, that other person that's kind of in it with you, where you can kind of sanity check decisions and, and strategic offerings to move forward. And did you find that from, from other places, other founders or family members? Yeah, I mean, what I really had to do was build a strong advisory network around me and bring on those mentors and advisors that I really relied heavily on uh, in the early days just to to help make it through and to be at the sounding board and to make decisions. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, so one of the other questions from the group is just about the early days at TaskRabbit. And I think um, sometimes there's this feeling when you look back at companies that like, you know, everything was easy and wonderful. Um, but the question is really about in the early days, what was it like? Did you have a lot of other competitors? You know, what were some of those challenges in the early days? Uh, so nothing ever felt easy or wonderful to me ever. Um, <laughs> as I look back at the company journey ever. Um, so I think when you're in it, it's a very different perspective than sort of the external perspective. But one, I think, positive thing about starting a company in a recession is there's probably not going to be a lot of competition. And so we didn't see a lot of competition emerge until really 2011, 2012. Although, as I said before, I didn't feel like we did a good job from a product standpoint, kind of being able to keep up with the competition and keep up with the customer mindset. We had so many learnings operationally about what was going to work and what was not going to work. I knew that as the competition popped up three to four years later, that um, it was going to be a lot harder than they thought to pull, pull off a business like TaskRabbit. So that gave me a lot of confidence, actually. And I think today, as you're starting, just realizing that you may have less competition and it gives you an opportunity to really understand again and learn what the market needs are, what the customer needs are. But knowing as the market improves, if you're doing well, that's when the competition really starts to pop up. That's when new capital gets infused into the market. But if you can stay a step ahead of them, then that is the place you want to be. What helped you to really stay committed in those early days when, you know, it would have been really easy to walk away from what you were building and it was a completely new way of doing things, um, a lot of customer education on both sides. How did you, how did you see it through? Yeah, I mean, I think you just have to be really, really passionate about what you're building. And for me, again, I think it goes back to the customer interaction. It was great to understand how we we're impacting people's lives, both on the client and the tasker side. And that's really what kept me going. Um, and so it's understanding what is the mission of your business and are you really delivering on that? And how passionate are you about that mission and about you know building values in your company that align um, with your mission and vision? And I think that for me is what really kept me going. Great. Um, so we've gotten a couple questions from the group that are um, about about startups that have either brick and mortar businesses that are part of them or restaurant industry or travel industry. And some of the questions are just around, you know, one, 
you know, how to approach that right now from a founder perspective, which is obviously a really difficult question to answer, but also how to communicate to stakeholders and investors, given there's so much uncertainty and, you know, even by the week, things are changing really dramatically. I mean, I think taking a look at your business and understanding like what's the unique value add you can offer the customer today that the customer isn't getting from somewhere else. How can you survive through this, you know, next few months so that you can come out on the other side and then operate and scale again, but being really creative, I think in the short term about how to service what the customer needs are and being open to, you know, innovate um, around what you can offer. That is really helpful advice. Um, and, and on a related note um, from a company that is in the travel space and, you know, was having great growth before all of this happened and now is really faced with a, a really small budget and, and a lot of uncertainty. Curious if you have any tips on just like the customer acquisition in the early days and any of the kind of scrappy um, ways that you were able to get your initial customers uh, in the early days of TaskRabbit. Well, for TaskRabbit, we were really hyper-locally focused. And so in some ways, that was great because I didn't have to spend a lot of money to get the word out. I would go to neighborhood newspapers or I would go around neighborhoods and canvas with postcards or I have taskers help me do that. I would visit small business owners neighborhood by neighborhood and tell them about our offering and ask if they needed anyone to do deliveries. You know, I think it depends on your business. Um, about how scrappy you can get, but certainly with TaskRabbit, it was hyper-local. It was a marketplace. There were a lot of creative tactics that I could deploy that didn't cost a lot of money in the beginning. So Anna, um, kind of moving over to the hiring side of things, one of the questions from the group is just, you know, back in 2008, did you find it actually easier to hire a caliber team? Um, and do you think your, your similar trends will emerge now in terms of hiring and any tips on that Absolutely. front? Absolutely. I think, yes, you are going to be able to hire the best people now and in the next 12 months um, than you could have a year ago. And bring, again, bring people on that are really passionate about what you're doing and want to be a part of that mission. You're also going to find employees today that I think are more loyal to what you're building and stay with you for a long, long time. I mean, it's kind of interesting as I look back at the last decade with TaskRabbit, the people that I hired in the first couple of years stayed like to the very end, stayed up to the acquisition, stayed through the whole you know, arc of the company. Not just because they were incented to from an equity standpoint, but because they were so loyal and they'd been there so early. You know, it's just going to be a very different mentality, I think, um, in hiring and for team members that are looking for great companies to work for. I think looking for companies that align with your values and align, you know, with a mission that you can get behind, it's going to be a great opportunity for people, I think, to find a lot of fulfillment in their work as well. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So one of the other questions from the group, sorry to jump around a bit, but there are a lot of good ones popping up on the chat. Um, so another one was just about what, what your superpower capabilities were and what, what the things that you think really made you successful with TaskRabbit, um, especially in the, the early days. I think, well, I've been told, I didn't know this from the beginning, but I've been told that my enthusiasm is contagious. And so when I would meet with people and I would talk to them about my idea for TaskRabbit, I was able to really draw them in and engage them and get them excited about what I was doing. And I think that is, that turned out to be a super, 
power. It was great with investors. It was great with hiring team members. It was great with bringing taskers into the community who wanted to be a part of it. You know, storytelling, um, sharing your vision, having a strong mission, being able to communicate what your values are. I mean, these things are just so important as a founder, particularly in the early days, to really attract the right people around you. That's a good superpower to have. <laughs> so another question from the group is just, um, so after selling TaskRabbit, did you decide that you wanted to move into VC and how did you make that decision versus going out to start another business? Yeah, great question. I mean, it's something I took about a year uh, to think about before I made the decision to do. And I think what I realized is I started TaskRabbit because I saw these emerging technologies because I'm an engineer, because I saw social location and mobile technologies as an opportunity to build something new. That was really the premise of the company. And I started the company and I built out those technologies. There was AR and there was VR and there was AI and there was Bitcoin and all kinds of really, really interesting things that as an engineer and technologist, I get really excited about. And so I knew I didn't want to put my head down in a single technology, in a single company again for another decade, but I wanted to find a role and opportunity where I could dig into a lot of different areas and a lot of different technologies. And frankly, where I could use my experience as a founder to really help the next generation of entrepreneurs. And, and so I went through about a 12 month process where I spoke to everyone at different firms, large firms, small firms, thought about starting my own firm and really got comfortable um, with joining Fuel and focusing on early stage investing, which I think you know is where my passion is and where I felt like I could be the most helpful. What's your advice for founders now on building rapport with investors, especially in this new virtual setting? And you know what can you do to really stand apart in this environment? Great question. I mean, I remember getting meetings with investors and I'd always try to get the in-person meeting. I always felt like I was so much better in person. I could really engage them in person. And so when that's not an option, I can see where that would be really challenging and really hard. I would say, you know, video is really important. So don't just sort of move to phone calls. Um, I'm much more engaged with a founder when I have them on video and I can see their, what their interactions are like. We can share screens. So I'd say in lieu of being able to meet in person, being able to do video chats, I think is sort of the next best thing. And then any sort of demo you can give to an investor about what your product is. Um, you know, it depends what your product is, but for TaskRabbit, when we met with investors, we would always post a task in the meeting in real time and it ranged from you know if we were in new york city the big thing at the time was cronuts and no one could get cronuts delivered and so we'd go on TaskRabbit and we'd like send a box of cronuts to the to the investor's office just so they could understand what the process was a tasker would show up in real life if they get to talk to that person too maybe interview them as diligence and so think about like are there any interesting demos or or things that you can uh, utilize to show the investor you're chatting with about what you're building. That's great advice. Another question from the group is around uh, two-sided marketplaces. And just, you know, in the early days of TaskRabbit, what were some of the hacks that you used to grow both sides of the marketplace? So it's really hard to tackle both sides at the same time is one big learning I have. And so generally, you have to focus on one side or the other in the early days. And 
So early on, I focused on the supply side. I started building up taskers, people that wanted to make money on the platform. And once I felt like I had enough taskers, then I shifted my focus over to the demand side. And I started thinking about what, how can I improve the product experience? How can I get the word out? And then as demand grew, I had to move back over to the tasker side and you know, think about, okay, what are the tools they need now as demand has scaled? And so you're constantly juggling back and forth in a marketplace business. And it's really, really complicated. And any sort of levers or changes you make to one side will affect the other side, particularly around pricing, um, around matching, around product experiences. And so I think the trap that a lot of founders can fall into in running a marketplace business is trying to do too much at once, trying to tackle too many things at once, trying to focus on both sides at once. I mean, one of the key things in building a marketplace business is to really understand what all the levers are and how the marketplace is connected. What is the ecosystem that you're creating and how is everyone connected? And if you start pulling you know, five levers at, at a time on different sides, you won't really understand what the connection points are and how one lever affects one side or the other. And so I'd say really be vigilant and ruthless about prioritizing your focus. What are the the very small, intricate pieces of the marketplace that you can test around pricing, around matching, around scheduling, around recruiting, around whatever it is. And although it's, it can sort of feel painful at times that you're not doing enough or you have you know, thousands of ideas you wanna test and try and implement, I think staying really, really focused early on and understanding the ecosystem that you're building is the most important thing. So one quick last question just to, yeah, to, uh, to end on a positive note, Leah, um, what are you doing right now to help your portfolio companies in terms of their mental health um, and, and getting through this challenging time? Yeah, well, we're trying to do what we can. And one of our core values actually at Fuel is that we don't just invest in the company, we invest in the person. And to us, it's just as important to make sure that the founder is, you know, operating in a sustainable way for their own health, for their own sanity, really, that they can build the right cultures and the right businesses to be successful and to move forward. And so, you know, we have been doing virtual events. We've done uh, meditation events every week, actually, for our founder community. And then log on on Fridays during lunchtime with an amazing um, meditation expert, Will Kabat-Zinn, if anyone knows him or is aware of him. We're also doing um, weekly webinars on how to operate through this crisis um, with some practical you know, examples and tactics um, for our founder community to understand and gather information. And hopefully, you know, we'll be able to all get together again soon at some point this year. Uh, last year we held a, a refuel retreat is what we called it. It was an overnight retreat, uh, two days, one night, up in uh, this ranch in Marin where we didn't actually focus on business strategy at all. We just focused on founder health and wellness and sort of gave our founders the opportunity to reset, rejuvenate, and figure out how to, to move forward in a positive, sustainable way. So hopefully we'll get to do that again at some point this year.